Well, hello, friends, and a special welcome. If you're joining us for the first time, we're in week three of a seven-week series that we've called Signs. And what we're doing this winter is taking seven weeks to take a deep dive into what just might be the most influential book ever written. It's called The Gospel of John. It's basically an account of the life of Jesus written by one of his closest followers, one of the original 12 disciples, a man named John. And I say it's the most influential because I'm convinced it, more than any other book, helps us understand Jesus, who he was and what he came to do, his mission and his message. And as we said for the past few weeks, the most important thing to remember in this series is that John didn't choose to follow Jesus because one day he woke up and he just believed in Jesus. That wasn't how it worked for him. Uh, for him, he came to faith in Jesus because of what he saw and because of what he heard. And based on the evidence, he put his faith in Jesus. He came to believe that Jesus was his savior. Then decades after the crucifixion and resurrection, John decides to write an account of what he had experienced so that people all over the world could know about Jesus. And what's interesting about John's account in particular is that he has an agenda as he writes, and he actually tells us what that agenda is. He organizes his content around seven signs that he said point us to Jesus, to help us understand who Jesus was. But as far as his agenda, right near the end of his gospel, John writes the following words. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. He says, you know, you've just kind of come to the end of my account. There was a whole bunch of other stuff, which makes me wonder what it was I'd like to know. But he says, you know, I've just unpacked all this material for you. You need to know that wasn't all there was. But then he says this, he says, but these are written as in the seven signs I've given you are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. John unapologetically says, I am trying to convince you based on the evidence to believe in Jesus, to put your faith in Jesus, to trust in Jesus. So seven signs, and in this series, we're doing a deep dive into each of those seven signs one by one. And today, we get to explore the third sign. And to get us going, I want to ask you a question. We'll put it up on the screen. It goes like this. Have you ever seen someone prioritize religious rules over compassion? And a few of you inside just went, mmm, right? You did like the Christian moo thing. You ever done that? Yeah. Yeah, because you grew up in church and you saw this all the time. And this was one of the reasons that you didn't. You unchurched yourself for a season, right? And welcome back, by the way, right? But you just said, man, I mean, people, religious people, you know, who, who think they're doing the right thing, prioritize rules over Compassion, it happens all the time. Maybe it was you who was mistreated earlier in your life. I mean, your marriage collapsed and you found yourself ostracized from your church family at the time you needed them the most. Like they stopped calling, they stopped inviting. It's almost like they were suddenly trying to communicate, you're no longer one of us. Or maybe it was your kid uh, there was an out-of-wedlock pregnancy, and you felt that distance start to creep in. You, you felt more judgment from your church community than you did compassion. Or, or maybe, maybe it was your friend, and you've journeyed with them for a long time as they sort of wrestled with some things, and you watched as they slowly were sort of 
removed from the community or at least an active part of the community based on a lifestyle choice that they made and something in that just didn't feel right. It felt like, it felt like they were prioritizing religious rules over compassion. It happens all the time. And as I thought about it this week, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think it's often well-intentioned church people who do this. They are well-intentioned in that they unintentionally hurt people in an effort to believe that they're living in a way that honors God. So that's us today. That's sort of an observation from 2020, but it may surprise you to know that this is not a new phenomenon. In fact, 2,000 years ago, Jesus confronted this reality in his day, and he did it head on. And with the rest of our time this morning, I want to explore what he said to religious leaders then and religious people then, because I think it gives us some incredible insight about how we should live now. And so without further ado, uh, the story that we get to unpack today, it's, it's called The Healing by the Pool of Bethesda. Doesn't that just captivate you and make you want to dive in? It does me. So anyway, it's in John chapter 5, and here's the setup that John gives us. He says, sometime later, and he's just described something, and he says, some time passes. He says, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, Jesus is always hanging out in the north of Israel around the Sea of Galilee, and when he goes to Jerusalem, Jerusalem's in the south. So we might say he went down to Jerusalem, but anytime anybody goes to Jerusalem in the Bible, they went up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is in the mountains. Not important for our story, but just wanted you to know. So he says, now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Now he goes on. He says, here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now, when John is writing his account, he's saying used to lie uh, partly because in 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem and really the city was leveled by the Roman Empire. So he's sort of reflecting back. He says, you know, back in the day, there was this pool and uh, people, the sick people, the, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed, uh, they would lie around the pool. Now, here's what's fun. Archaeologists have actually uncovered the ruins of the pool at Bethesda in the old city of Jerusalem. And this is going to shock you. It's a tourist attraction. Can you believe it, right? Here's a picture um, of what the ruins look like today. Of course, way down at the bottom, you find what was there in the first century. And then uh, well-intentioned religious people kept building structures on top of it. And so when you're there, you get to kind of explore the labyrinth um, of the, what was the Pool of Bethesda. And of course, on your way out, you can buy a commemorative t-shirt because that is how it goes in Israel. Um, but anyway, John gives us specific details about the disabled people who were lying there because he wants us to know that these were people who carried some of the greatest challenges imaginable in the ancient world. Because of their disability, people assumed that they or their parents had done something wrong, and so they were outcasts of society. People didn't generally help disabled people, which meant that their only hope came in the form of pagan temples and superstition. Sometimes they would go to a pagan temple in the hopes that a pagan priest would show them mercy or maybe the God to whom the pagan temple was dedicated, maybe, just maybe, they would be healed. And what's interesting, along with the ruins of the Pool of Bethesda, archaeologists have also found a pagan shrine to the, god, the Greek god Asculapius or Asclepius, 
very nearby. Here's a, a carving of Esculapius. You'll notice the snake on a stick, which some of you who are in the medical field may recognize, sort of has its origins in Esculapius. And I have no idea who the little dude is next to him. I looked, okay? I Googled it and I was like, I don't know who that is. Maybe that is his faithful assistant, Henri, or something like that. I have no idea who that is. Not important to the story. But anyway, that background sets up the context for what comes next. Because in the first century in Israel, there was a legend that said every so often an angel would stir the waters in the pool of Bethesda. Now, archaeologists have told us that there used to be a spring underneath, and that was probably the, the cause of the stirring of the waters. But nonetheless, they believed it was an angel that stirred the waters. And when this happened, they believed that the first person to get into the water after the angel stirred the water would be healed. And so just imagine the chaos. A bunch of these untouchable peoples are crowded around this pool. And then every time the spring bubbles up, they make this mad rush because whoever gets in first, they believed would be healed. And it was into this emotionally charged setting that Jesus walked his disciples one day. So here's what John tells us as the story continues. He says, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. So decades not being able to move. Well, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, and before I show you what he asked him, just a, a few thoughts. Like, we don't know why Jesus chose this man in particular. Maybe he was the oldest one there. Maybe he was the one who was located farthest from the pool. But whatever the reason, Jesus engages the man in conversation and he learns that he's been an invalid for 38 years. And then Jesus does the strangest thing. He leans down and he asks him a question. Now, when I first show you the question, you're going to think, that's a really strange question. And then I'm going to lean on it a little bit and you're going to see it's not as weird as you might think. But here's what Jesus asks the man. He says to him, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? And, and it's, it, is, it seems strange until you realize we all know people who are sick in one way or another who really don't want to get well. Or at least you have that suspicion because they've been complaining about something for year after year after year after year after year, but they haven't done what it takes to get well. And you're like, we can talk about this again, but there are some steps. There are some people you can talk to. There are some doctors you can visit. But here's the thing. Sometimes getting well is harder than staying sick. And for some of us, we might even admit in an honest moment, that's part of our story. Like the reason we haven't gotten well and done the thing that we know we need to do either physically or emotionally is because we really aren't willing to pay the price. Sometimes staying in a toxic habit or staying in a toxic relationship is easier than getting help. That's not the point of today's talk, which is something to think about when you go to Panera after church. Here we go. Okay. So Jesus doesn't give us, uh, Jesus, so anyway, Jesus asked the question, I think in this case, because he doesn't want to give the man something the man doesn't want. And so he asks. And the guy responds that he does want to get well. And I love this moment because the man who's been a, a paralytic for 38 years doesn't know who Jesus is and he doesn't know what Jesus can do. He simply is a guy who has asked him a question. So do you want to get well? Here's how he responds. The man says to Jesus, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. Well, well I'm trying to get in. Someone else goes down ahead of me. Like, I'm just not that, I'm not that mobile. I have the superstition that I have the faith that if I could get to the water, man, something might happen, but I physically can't get myself into the water. So yeah, I want to get well, but I can't get well 
under my own strength. And, and so when, as the story continues, as in my mind anyway, Jesus leans down and whispers to the man. He says, get up. And then the translators, uh, the translators put an exclamation point there, which makes it sound like he sort of yelled at the man very, you know, you know like, hey, here we go. This is a big moment. But, but that's just because of the Greek tense. It's an imperative. So it's a directive. But as I imagine it, Jesus would have gone tenderly to this man and said, hey, get up. And, and the Greek word translated get up is interesting because it can also be translated wake up or rise up or even come to life. Like there's a sense in which Jesus is saying to the man, this is a new beginning for you. There's even a weird, in a weird way, you're almost being born again. There's new hope. There's new potential to your life. He says, get up. And then he says something else. He says, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. And he picked up his mat and he walked. Just pick up, pick up your mat and walk. And just imagine with me for a minute just how this guy must have felt. Like everything Everything just changed. He went from outsider to insider. What's going on inside of his heart? He doesn't even know where to start except Jesus told him to pick up his mat and walk. So guess what he did? He picked up his mat and walked. He's like, we'll start there. And Jesus and his disciples just sort of disappear into the crowd. But here's where the story gets interesting. Because by asking the man to pick up his mat and walk, Jesus has just intentionally kicked a hornet's nest. Because the day on which this man was cured was the Jewish Sabbath. And that was a big deal. So much so that in the first century, if you and I were to visit Jerusalem on the Sabbath and you'd walk around, what you'd see is the Jewish religious leaders in all of their garb monitoring people in the city to make sure none of them were breaking any of the rules of the Sabbath. They were sort of the God squad, if you were, right? And so they're out on patrol and they see a man carrying his mat. And they approach him and they confront him, especially because he appears to be walking in the direction of the Jewish temple. Now, he would have been walking in the direction of the Jewish temple because he's just been healed miraculously and he wants to go to the temple to thank God for the healing and he probably hasn't been allowed in the temple since he was an infant because that would have been the last time he would have been there assuming he was around 38 years old. But the God squad walks up to him and says, with lots of compassion, right? The day on which this took place was a Sabbath and so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Now, here's the interesting thing. The law actually didn't say that. And that's the key to understanding what happens next. The law didn't say that, but the first century Jewish religious tradition, their interpretation of the law said that. And if you'd ask one of these Jewish leaders, like, where did that idea come from? That you can't carry something or carry a mat on the Sabbath. Where, where do you get that idea? They would say, oh, that's actually from the tradition of the elders or the oral Torah. Now, Torah is, is basically a, a word that can mean a lot of different things, but it basically means, in this context, the Old Testament law, the 613 commands that God gave 
his people, some to do things to do, some things not to do. But the oral Torah, that's where you would find that. And the story behind the oral Torah is that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, and if you've read the uh, book of Exodus, you know about that. If you've seen Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments movie, you've seen this, right? Comes down, stone tablets. He gets the original Ten Commandments, the original law of God. But he also gets, while he's up there, this oral Torah, which for reasons they don't get into, could never be written down. And so it was just passed on from generation to generation, from religious leader to religious leader. That's, that's the oral Torah. And, and, and that's not necessarily bad either, but, but in the first century, the Jewish religious leaders affirmed all the extra rules in the oral Torah as a way to sort of keep people from breaking the written law. So it was sort of like a fence. They say, like if, if we don't get people, if we can keep people from getting even near breaking God's law, then that's going to be better. And that's not necessarily a terrible idea, but it made things complicated. Because in the first century, especially in the Jewish leader's mind, the written law and the oral law were given equal authority. And, this, and in this non-written oral law, there were 39 categories of things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And I read them, and I will not bore you with them, but one of them that's really relevant was that you could not carry something from one place to another on the Sabbath. And so in their minds, this man is breaking God's commandment not to work on the Sabbath. So God says to his people, uh, there are seven days, six of them you should work. And on one of them, on the seventh day, the Sabbath, you should rest. You should do no work. And of course, God doesn't tell them what that means. And so that's where all the other rules come on. But they've decided that you cannot carry something from one place to another on the Sabbath. And so the religious leaders approached this recently healed man that basically said, you know, the law forbids you to carry something on the Sabbath. And here's the guy's response. And this is just awesome. I love this. But he replied... The man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So you may wonder why I am carrying my mat on the Sabbath day. I am aware this is against the rules. But here's the thing. The guy who healed me told me to pick up my mat and walk. For 38 years, I couldn't walk. And all of a sudden, I can walk. And the only thing the guy told me was to pick up my mat and walk. So sorry, God squad. I'm going to pick up my mat and walk. This is kind of how this is going to roll, right? And, and I love that he doesn't even know Jesus' name. He's just like the man who healed me. He's like, you know, I'm, I'm not, my intention isn't specifically to violate the Sabbath rules, but, but the guy who healed me told me to, and, and, and no offense, I opted to obey the guy who healed me in, instead of you because all you've been doing is ignoring me for 38 years because you were convinced that my sins or the sins of my parents were what left me without the ability to walk. So the guy thinks, yeah, you, you know, if you're right, if it was my sin or my parents' sin, and that was what left me an invalid, then, then I guess I was getting what I deserved. But this guy, who I, and again, I, his name escapes me, I didn't know, but this guy who moved incredibly in my life gave me precisely what I didn't deserve. And then in a moment where I was filled with emotion, he said, you know, get up and walk. So I got up and walked. And I'm here having this lovely conversation with you, right? Yeah. Well, as the narrative continues, um, the religious leaders ask the logical question. They're like, the man who made you well, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? Because we got an issue with him too, okay? Because one of the other rules on the Sabbath was that you could do no medical intervention on the Sabbath unless it was to save someone's life. And hello, you couldn't walk, but you weren't dead, 
okay? He could have waited a day. So we need to talk to this guy too because he's broken our rules too. So what's his name? The guy says, the man who was healed had no idea who it was. <laughs> For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. I, I don't know. But this moment is so fascinating to me because here you have a group of religious leaders who are trying to follow the rules because they want to live a life that honors God. But in their efforts to follow the rules as they understood them, and there certainly is some interpretation here, in their effort to follow the rules as they understood them, they were actually missing the point. Because the point of God's commandment to his people to do no work on the Sabbath, the point was to take a break from your labor. It was to take a day off from work to be reminded that you're a human being and not just a human doing. The point was to take a break from your labor, not to take a break from love. It was to take a break from your occupation, not to take a break from compassion or mercy. And so to me, this story illustrates what happens when often well-intentioned religious people forget the why behind the what. This is what happens when, when defending a, a theological interpretation takes priority over the people that that theology was supposed to help. Or maybe said a little more pointedly, you know, when what's best for, put that on my screen, when what's best for people isn't what's best, or what isn't what's most important to you, you're at odds with God. When what's best for people isn't what's most important to you, you're actually at odds with God. And you, you probably won't realize it because you feel like you're doing the right thing. And it really is, it really is that simple. And you say, well, okay, that, that sounds interesting. How in the world do you know that to be true? How can, how can you be so sure? And I can be sure because of something John wrote earlier in his gospel. Because John, the one who wrote this, the gospel, and the one who uh, is pointing us, this, explaining the seven signs that pointed him to Jesus, also wrote the most famous words in your Bible, the ones that you see held up on placards in the end zone of big football games, John 3.16. And you all know it, but I'll read it to you anyway, just to remind you. He says, for God, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The, the sort of life where you're living the way that God intends, the sort of life that goes on past this life. It's like belief in Jesus unlocks this potential. But, but this first line, for God so loved the world. In other words, God so loved every race and every gender and every generation and every nation and every tribe and every tongue that he sent Jesus to pay for sin so that everybody would have the potential to be reconnected to him. God loves everyone and everyone matters to God. God loves everyone and God cares about everyone. And if God really loves everyone and God really cares about everyone, then there's a whole bunch of things that fall out of that observation. Number one, anything I do to hurt another person is sin. And anything I do to distance another person from God is a sin. And any time any biblical application gets in the way of someone being treated with dignity, somebody that God loves, that's a sin too. And, and, and this concept is so important for all of us to really wrestle down. But I think it's even especially important for people like me because I spend an unhealthy amount of time with the Bible each week. I'm just going to tell you, right? 
I mean, I spend hours and hours and hours in the text and in the culture and in the context, and I know more than, more than most people, and I don't, I'm not bragging this, I know this is healthy, but I can find verses to justify just about anything I want. And I know if I can like rip stuff out of context, I can make the Bible say just about anything I want. And, and so again, it, it's this idea that if God loves everyone and God cares about everyone, then then any, any sort of biblical application that gets in the way of someone being treated with dignity, it's wrong. It's a sin. And that's, I think, what Jesus is trying to help us see and what John is trying to help us see in this sign. Okay, back to the story. Um, what happens next drives commentators absolutely crazy. People that study the Bible and write books about it. This next passage drives them nuts. I read some fascinating theories trying to explain what Jesus says next. But I think they're all overthinking it. Now, I'll show you what I mean. Because I think what happens next is actually hilarious. So stay with me, and you can disagree, feel free. But here's what, I, here's what happens next. Later, so some time passes, uh, Jesus found the guy who was healed at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Like, high five, this is working good. But then he says something else. He says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, does anyone see why the commentators go nuts with this? They're like, hello, Jesus, that's not very Jesus-y, but you're Jesus, so I guess it is Jesus-y, and I don't know what to do with that, so preach that, why don't you, right? See, you're well again, stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. And so here's how, here's how this, this is why this is funny. As I imagine it, the recently healed man is still carrying his mat on his shoulders, and he bumps into Jesus. And he goes, oh, you're the guy. They, they're after you, but you're the guy. What, what's your name? Who can I thank for this great miracle in my life? And so Jesus introduces himself and he smiles and he puts his hand on the guy's shoulder and he says, hey, you better stop carrying around that mat, you evil sinner, you. Right? <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't want anything worse to happen to you. They might throw you out of the temple. Ooh, you know, you haven't been in the temple in 38 years, right? I, I mean, I think Jesus was being playful. Because if you think about it, this guy has not been sinning. He's in the temple bringing thanks to God. He's carrying his mat because the guy that healed him told him to carry his mat. And if somebody heals you and tells you to carry your mat, you carry your mat, right? I mean, that's how that goes. But if you think about it, this guy hasn't been able to do much of anything for like 38 years. He hasn't been able to move. And the only thing he's able to do or he's doing right now is carrying his mat, which Jesus told him to do. So when they bump into each other, Jesus was being playful. He was joking with him. He wasn't threatening him. And so, okay, that was just for fun. Now the narrative concludes uh, with a conversation between Jesus and the religious leaders. And I think this conversation actually helps us see why John chose this as one of the signs he would include to help us understand the mission and message and identity of Jesus. So here's what John tells us next. He said, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, breaking their rules, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Like, no, we can't have healing on the Sabbath, Jesus. That is not, that is not how this thing goes. Continues, Jesus, in his defense, Jesus said to them, and, and this is like, you talk about kicking the hornet's nest. My father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working. In other words, God squad, um, God didn't take a day off from showing compassion today. And therefore, God actually violates your version of the Sabbath too. I'll let you think about that a second, right? God is always at work, and I'm just being like my dad. 
And I think the religious leaders were like, oh, that totally makes sense. You're right. We've got this all wrong. Nope, that's not what they said. Here's what they said. Uh, For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In other words, the religious leaders listen to Jesus and they go, whoa, 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 whoa. Who do you think you are? And John would lean into you and I and say, that is the question that you all need to wrestle down. Because Jesus did what he did. He did what he did so that you could know what God is like. And so that you could know who he was. Jesus says this in the next verse. He says, Jesus gave him this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son, speaking of himself, can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. Now that is an extraordinary claim. And what Jesus said that day and what John recorded for us, because John never forgot this moment, Jesus basically said this. He said, if you want to know what God is like, watch Jesus. If you want to know what God would say to someone caught in sin, look at how Jesus interacts with people that are caught in sin. If if you wonder what God would say to you when you have been exposed in sin, watch how Jesus moved towards people caught in sin because it was with compassion and it was with mercy. And so Jesus is like, okay, um, God loves you so much that he sent me to show you his heart. So, so if you, the closest you're ever going to get to understanding him is by watching me. I don't do anything he doesn't do. And so I can't show you everything about him because you're, you're not able to handle it right now. You'll get that on the other side. But for now, as far as this life is concerned, watch me. Listen to me. Follow me and I'll show you him and I'll take you to him. It's like Jesus would say to these religious leaders, listen, it's been complicated in the past. Now you just need to follow me. Like your whole life, you've searched, the, you've searched the Old Testament. You've memorized it. You've categorized it. You've ranked the rules. And you've done that because you believe if you search it deep enough, you can actually find eternal life. But you've missed the point. You've opted, over, you've opted for the written over the living. You've chosen your interpretation over a living demonstration. And, and friends, this is why the four Gospels, like John's, are so important for you and me. Because they bring us this incredibly freeing message. Especially for those of us like me who are inclined to rule following and especially religious rule following. And it goes like this. You know, the message is in a world filled with moral and religious and ideological tensions, God made it is easy for us because he showed up, he spoke up, And his message was clear. He said, Jesus, um, what do you want us to do as your followers? How do you want us to engage in the tensions of our world? And and how do we relate to people that we don't agree with? And and people we don't think you agree with? And people we don't even like? Like, how do you want us to interact with them? And instead of giving them another labyrinth of rules to follow and rank and argue about and debate about, Jesus gave his followers a single new command that was to be a defining ethic for them. He says, listen, whatever the situation you get into, however complicated, I want you to press it through this filter and you'll know what to do. And you say, what in the world? What in the world? What, what sort of rule is that? 
Well, on the night Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends, one of those 12 disciples, he had that final meal with his disciples. And we go back here all the time because a whole lot happened at that last supper. But at the end of the meal, Jesus looked at his followers and he said this, a new command I give you, love one another. But it gets, it gets better. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So not love like you are used to loving. Not like a conditional love, but like an unconditional love. Like, you, like I, I give it all for you. And as we say regularly around here, Jesus, a day after he said this, he staged a demonstration of love that took their breath away because it took his breath away. And they never forgot it. So love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then he does this. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, like that you're my followers, if you love one another. It's like, the good news is that in a world of shifting beliefs and cultures and interpretations and tensions, we almost always know what love would ask us to do in a given situation. Compassion, mercy, grace, so I just want to leave you, leave you with a question, kind of at the tail end, at least it falls out for me, and I'm asking me as much as I'm asking you, and it, it just goes like this. Do you ever find that your commitment to follow rules gets in the way of compassion? And does your version of Christianity ever get in the way of loving people God loves? And, and the strange thing is God loves everybody. And if so... Then, then I would invite you to consider maybe finding a new version. And if, and if you wonder how you do that, it, it's so simple. You just follow Jesus. 2,000 years ago, he walked along the shores of the Sea of Galilee and he saw a group of fishermen and he said, come follow me. And as he's walking, he finds a tax collector, an outsider, someone who thought God would never want anything to do with somebody like that. And he says, would you follow me? And to broken, imperfect people who've left a wake of damage in all of our past, right? He looks to you and me and he says, would you follow me? Let me show you. Let me show you how to find the life you were made to live. Let me show you how, what it means to live the way that God designed you to live. It's beautiful. It's freedom. It's a life you were made for. It's, it's what John wants for you. It's what I want for you. It's what I want for me. We're gonna find, it's what you want for you. So Jesus extends the invitation. And the good news is that if we can keep our eyes on Jesus, we will never, ever forget the why behind the what. Would you stand? I'll close us in prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us as we are. Thank you for meeting us in the darkest moments of our life and offering us compassion and mercy and grace and then inviting us to be a people of compassion and mercy and grace. Give us wisdom as we, as we enter complicated relationships and situations. Sometimes we really have to wrestle to know what love would have us do in a situation. And I pray that by your spirit you would lead us. But for this morning, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for loving all of us in spite of us. Thank you for believing in us. Thank you for inviting us to find a better way, a way that leads to eternal life. Most of all, we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name, the name above all names, that we pray. Everyone said.
Amen. Friends, before you leave, once again, if you're in need of prayer, uh, just meet us right down under this screen. We'd love to just pray over you. Uh, Otherwise, grace and peace. We'll see you next week.